Philemon. We'll be looking at Philemon 19 through 25. This is Philemon just after Titus. Before we hear God's word read, let us go again to our Father asking for his help. Our Father, help us to see the wisdom, the grace, and the peace, and the mercy in your word here. Help us to see Christ shining brightly before us. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Philemon, verses 19 through 25. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, if you've lived long enough, you've done something bad. Something that needs to be forgiven. Maybe you drove your dad's car into a tree. Maybe you were caught lying or gossiping or slandering someone. Maybe you punched your brother a little too hard, a little too long, and a little too angrily. Maybe you said something to someone and you immediately regretted after you said it. But whatever it is, there it is. It's out there. It's hanging in the air. You can't undo it. You can't unsay it. It's there. Then what? You know, you've apologized. You've expressed sorrow over how you offended the person, how you hurt the person, how you sinned against God, and you've asked for forgiveness. Then what? What do you, as the offender, do? You wait. And perhaps sometimes you're, you're not waiting very long. The person immediately says, yes, I forgive you. But other times... You wait, and you wait some more, and you wait some more. Depending on the severity of the offense, depending on the attitude of the offended party, you wait. And that waiting period can be fairly brutal, can't it? It can be agonizing, can't it? You wonder, is the person ever going to forgive me? Is this thing that I did a bridge too far for us? Is this relationship forever forgotten now, never to be reconciled again? And it's not necessarily that the person you offended is playing games with you, though, of course, they might be, or they might be full of bitterness and anger and a lack of forgiveness that it's just impossible for them to forgive you. But for others, it's just hard to forgive really big offenses. It's just hard to move forward after that big offense, whatever it is, 
But by grace, and only by grace, and thankfully more times than not, the offended party does forgive. It was difficult, but the person reminding himself of what God has forgiven him extends forgiveness. There was that vertical transaction between him and God, and how can he then say, I'm going to hold this. I'm going to withdraw forgiveness from you. I'm not going to give you forgiveness. We're not going to be reconciled in, in any sense of the word. Because how could I? How could I do that, knowing what God has forgiven me of? And so he forgives you. And you praise God. Both of you do, don't you? Because you've gained a brother, as Matthew 18 says. You are together. And you can work on that relationship. And how do you, as the offender, how do you feel once you have been forgiven? I mean, you know it's there. You know what you did. You're not minimizing it. You're not, you're not rationalizing. You're not making excuses for it. You've expressed it. You know what you did was wrong. You know what you said was wrong. And you ask for forgiveness, and they forgive you. How do you feel? Surely you feel relief, don't you? Surely your heart is refreshed, isn't it? My spouse forgave me. My, my, my parent forgave me. My friend forgave me. My child forgave me. Well, in this last sermon, in this brief three-part series in Philemon, that's what we'll explore, that refreshment from forgiveness. That's what all of us are after, isn't it? The refreshment that comes from a restored relationship. We remember, and this is from two weeks ago, we remember who we are and whose we are. We remember that we are in Christ, that we are co-workers for Jesus, that we are prisoners for Christ Jesus, prisoners of Christ Jesus, that we belong to Jesus. This is our union with him, and this is irrevocable. No one can take this away from us. And not only are we in Christ, joined to Jesus, but we are also joined to one another. This is who we are and whose we are, and our identity is unshakable. And we remember who we are and whose we are, and so we move out in mediation, in service to Christ. And last week we saw that with love and grace leading the way, we can appeal to our offending brothers or to the offended, whether you are the offender or the offended, there needs to be that appeal, that urging with love, that love always is to lead the way. And remember, Paul was saying, brother, as I give you Onesimus, I give you myself. You have my heart in Onesimus. And so I appeal to you. I appeal to you. I appeal to you. I appeal to you. I'm not demanding, but I'm appealing because I love you, because I love Christ, because Christ loves you, because Christ loves me, because Christ loves Onesimus. I'm appealing, I'm appealing, I'm appealing. Let love lead the way. And with love, we who have been offended, then absorb the cost of the offense. And why do we do that? Because God the Son has absorbed that cost. Because Christ has paid it all. 
And now we move forward, still more in search of that refreshment that comes with this grace. As we, by grace, obediently follow the God of reconciliation, all our hearts are refreshed by more grace. As the heart, H-A-R-T, longs for flowing streams, so Paul longs for refreshment. Look again with me at verses 19 and 20. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. He urges Philemon to refresh his heart in Christ. That in Christ is very important. Notice that he's not talking about sending some people with a jug of water to him while he's in prison, although that would be a temporary relief and he would receive it well. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about a physical refreshment. He's not talking about refreshment that comes with drink or with food. He's not talking about a refreshment that comes with a a, a cloak or anything like that. He's talking about a spiritual refreshment, a refreshment that comes in Christ. He's calling out for a refreshment that comes from Christ and in acknowledgement of Christ as their common Lord, as their Savior, as their Redeemer. He's calling for a spiritual refreshment. This word, refresh, is mostly used for that spiritual refreshment, a spiritual joy, and so a cause for worship. You perhaps know this word um, most famously in Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty eight, when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will give you that spiritual refreshment that your soul depends upon, needs, that refreshment that the world doesn't know. But all who are in Christ know. It's that that Sabbath rest that we are experiencing even now on this Lord's day. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 18, refers to his beloved fellow workers that have given his spirit rest, that have given his spirit refreshment. These are real flesh and blood individuals who are working heartily unto the Lord, and Paul knows that, and his spirit is refreshed by their hard labor for God. Or in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 13, Paul rejoices because Titus was refreshed by the Corinthians. We have a double refreshment. Paul is refreshed, and Titus is refreshed because the Corinthians received Titus well. Paul rejoices that Titus was well received by these Corinthians This word is often used to speak of that refreshment that comes with receiving someone well or having been received well. Philemon, we're told here, will refresh Paul's heart if Philemon receives Onesimus as a brother in Christ. That's what his plea was that we saw last week. Don't receive him any longer as a bondservant, as merely a bondservant, but now as a brother in the Lord, someone who is in Christ with you. He wasn't, and now he is. Receive him. That's what he wants Philemon to do. And he knows that if Philemon obeys here, That is going to bring great refreshment to Paul's heart. He says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you. I'm sending Onesimus to you, and I want something in return. I want to be refreshed in Christ. I want my heart 
to be revived, refreshed because of what you're doing. I want to see you receive Onesimus no longer as a servant, but as your own brother, for that is who he is. His plea for refreshment comes right after he lays out the truth of grace. Philemon, you can hear him say, Philemon, brother, I have agreed to pay all of Onesimus' debt. Told you, I'm writing with my own hand. I will repay it. But do remember, brother, your debt to me. Do remember you're owing me even your own self. Now, Paul's approach here is not a worldly quid pro quo, a a this for that, something that we see over and over again in in business. We see this um, TV shows. uh, I'll scratch your back and you scratch my back. I'll bend the law a little bit in order to do you this favor, but soon, rather than later, I'm going to call you to do a favor for me. That's not what Paul is getting at here. He's not manipulating Philemon as we've already seen. But he is acknowledging that there is a sense in which Philemon owes Paul his very self. And how can that be? Because Paul was instrumental in the salvation of Philemon. In one sense, humanly speaking, Philemon is saved because of Paul. Just like Onesimus was saved because of Paul. Onesimus found his way to Paul. Paul gave him the gospel. Onesimus was saved. The same thing happens with Paul and Philemon. Philemon owes his very self to Paul because Paul was that apostolic means by which Philemon heard the gospel and so believed. Now, ultimately, of course, all of this is of God, isn't it? As Jonah prays, salvation belongs to the Lord. More on that tonight. It wasn't Paul, but God, who opened Philemon's ears to hear the beautiful sound of salvation. It was God who opened the eyes of Philemon to see the arresting image of the Savior. It isn't Paul's message of salvation per se. Although Paul will sometimes say, this is my gospel that I'm giving to you. My gospel because, yeah, it's God's gospel, but I have appropriated it by faith, and I'm never going to let it go. This is, this is the, my good news. This is good news for my heart. But ultimately, it isn't Paul's message in that it doesn't derive from Paul. This is God's gospel. It's the gospel from God about God. This is God's good news to the world. This is God's good news to Paul. This is God's good news to Philemon. It's God's good news to Onesimus. It's God's good news to the world. This message of salvation came from God, the Redeemer. So Paul is saying this, Look, brother, you had an infinite debt to God, which God paid through Christ. And I shared Christ with you, and by grace you believed. By grace, Philemon, Paul... God has received you, and now, brother, you should have no problem in accepting my offer to pay all of Onesimus' debt. You should have no problem even releasing me from that debt, knowing how much you owe me. And you should have no problem of receiving Onesimus heartily. 
One commentator says, Philemon is turned from creditor to debtor in two verses. It seems like Philemon is holding all the cards, doesn't it? He is the offended one. It, it, it was his slave that ran away. It was his goods that were taken from him. He holds all the cards. He is the one who has been offended. And Paul's not minimizing Onesimus' error. But you can see here, Paul's saying, now you know, brother, you, you might actually um, be owed, but do you know how much you owe me? Because I brought you the good news of salvation. Do you know how much you actually owe God? You owe God your whole life. How can you then withhold receiving Onesimus well when God, by grace, has received you well and he has ushered you into his heavenly home? He has brought you into his kingdom. We are all debtors, aren't we? Not that we are in any sense working our salvation uh, we have to do enough good works to then you know, make things right with God. Of course not. But we are all acknowledging our great need of salvation, and then we are thankful for God having paid it all for us. And so now, because Philemon owes Paul his very self, Paul asks him to obey. He wants Philemon to do something. And David Dixon summarizes Paul's heart here, as if Paul were saying, I shall receive the fruit of your faith in the Lord. If you grant this to me, you shall refresh his heart and mine for Christ's sake. In other words, Paul's saying, Brother Philemon, I want the fruit of your faith. Oh, I've seen the fruit of your faith. I know the kind of man that you are. I know the grace and peace that are from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ that are upon you, that are in, in you and through you. And I want to see more of that fruit. I want to see grace in action. I want to see love in action. I want to see you actually loving Onesimus here now that he has come back to you, now that I'm sending him back to you, now that he is in Christ. I want you to receive him. I want to see grace. Now, some of you know what this is like, don't you? You were converted perhaps at an older age, you were converted because of the courageous love of a friend, because of the passionate evangelistic fervor of that stranger, maybe that campus minister, that person who just got out of himself, who was bold enough to give you the gospel, and you believed. You heard it. God opened your ears. He opened your eyes. You, you saw, you heard, you believed, and you were so saved because God used that person to bring you to himself. And you've never been the same since. We should have high regard for those who bring the gospel to us. And our godly response of obedience to the gospel is a way of refreshing that friend, refreshing the spirit of that stranger, of that mentor, of that minister. It is wonderful news when person who gives the gospel to someone finds out years later that the person is still walking with the Lord. It's a joyful news to know that there is, that the gospel was, was received, the seed had, had taken root, and the person is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Surely that refreshes our hearts. But Paul goes a step higher. 
in verse 21, not quite to infinity and beyond. Verse 21, he says, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. What is this, even more than I say? I'm confident you're going to do even more than I'm telling you. What is this? Paul doesn't tell us. There are a couple options, at least here, based on the context of the letter. One would be that Paul is asking Philemon to assign Onesimus, now a faithful worker, to Paul for gospel ministry. Basically, Paul is saying, Onesimus came to me, he was converted, I'm sending him back to you, but I want you to send him back to me. Because he's been very useful. He was formerly useless, now he's useful to you, to me, to Christ's kingdom. I want him back. That could be one option. The other would be for Philemon to grant Onesimus his legal freedom. He ran away. He, he left you illegally. But now I want you to receive him and break those, the, the bonds of slavery here. I want you to go about it above board, on the up and up. I want you to do it legally. So, no longer have him be your slave. You're a, you're a godly Christian man. No longer have him as your slave. It could be either of those. It could be both of those. We're not told what Paul is asking Philemon to do more than he says. And that's intentional. Paul does not want to limit the bounds of grace. None of this, this point and no further, Philemon. None of this, let grace restrain you. Be miserly about your dispensation of grace. Of course not. No, be, be generous. Not let grace restrain you, but let grace run freely in your heart, Philemon. Let grace run freely in your home, in your church. Let it run abundantly in ours as well. Let grace know no bounds because of God's boundless grace to us. Let us not be restrained by grace. Grace is freeing, it's liberating, it's, it's giving, it's generous, it's other-oriented. It's, I'm not going to keep this grace over here for myself. No, it's, grace isn't for yourself, it's for them. You've been graced by God, and so you give. You have been mercied, and so you mercy. You've been comforted, and so you comfort. You've been given wisdom, and so you give wisdom. You have seen God's patience, and so you are patient with Him. You have seen God's love, and so you love. You have seen self-control, and so you have self-control. You have seen joy. You know the joy of the Lord as your strength, and so you have that posture of joy, and you try to give joy to others. Well, Paul, without prophetic foresight, is sure that Philemon will obey. He's confident of Philemon's obedience. And I've listed three reasons why he's confident of his obedience. The first is because of his commendation, which we saw two weeks ago. In verses 4 through 7, Paul commends Philemon. He's not taking away that earlier commendation for which he gives God thanks. He knows the man he is writing to. He He has seen Philemon's love. He has thanked God for Philemon's demonstration of love, his faith, his service, his investment in the lives of the saints meeting in his house. He has seen an exemplary fellow worker in Philemon, and so he is essentially saying, 
Receiving Onesimus is going to fit well with your character, Philemon. That's why I'm so confident that you're going to receive him. That's why I'm so confident you're going to be reconciled to him. Because I've already seen your faith and love and service. Another reason he's so confident is because of grace from God. Paul knows the God that they have in common. They're not serving a different God. They're serving the same God, the same Lord, the same Christ who gives out grace, who gives mercy, who gives peace. But we know, when we know that grace and peace have a say in the life of a believer, we can be confident that that person will follow this God of all grace and peace. This is why we marvel when we know our brothers and sisters are in Christ, but we see them doing something consistently out of accord with what Christ calls us to do. We, we marvel. We say, how can somebody who is in Christ, who, who loves Jesus consistently and regularly, persistently say something like that or do something like that? It doesn't compute because we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. That does not mean, of course, that we should ever expect sinless perfection in the life of any believer. That's not what I'm saying here. But you are a new creature for a reason. And new creatures bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so it doesn't compute for us. We know, we know the world's going to act like the world, but those who are given to the lordship of Christ, those who are submitting to Christ as their king, those who have grace and peace upon them and in them and through them, surely they will conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. So Paul is confident that Philemon is going to keep obeying, not perfectly, but he's confident because grace is reigning in Philemon's heart. And he's confident of Philemon's obedience because of Philemon's effective prayer life. Verse 22, he says, For I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. That's why he requests in faith that Philemon would prepare a guest room for him. He believes that he won't stay in Rome forever, he won't be in prison forever, and and he, he is eventually released. This is one of the first imprisonments, it wasn't the last one. But he has seen Philemon's fruit. He has seen the fruit of the man who has shared the blessed faith. And he now depends in part on Philemon's prayers for his release from Rome. And what does all of this confidence boil down to? It doesn't boil down to Philemon. It doesn't boil down to the godly character of Philemon. Paul is not depending at, at bottom on Philemon's character. Philemon, I just know you're the greatest man, you know, and I know you're going to do this. He's not depending on that. Or on Onesimus. He's not saying, Philemon, you should, you should see this man. He is on fire for the Lord. And he is, nothing's stopping him. He's so bold. Just consider the conduct of Onesimus. He's confident of this obedience 
not primarily because of Philemon, not primarily because of Onesimus, nor primarily because of his own gifting in mediating these two. No. He's confident because of God. Because of verse 3. Grace to you and peace, not from Philemon, not from Onesimus, not from the Apostle Paul, but grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This confidence that we all can have that people will conduct themselves Christianly, that people will pursue reconciliation, this confidence comes because of God. Because God reigns. Because God's grace has a say. Because God's love is more powerful than our holding on to our own bitterness, our own sin, our own offenses. With God, all things are possible. With God, reconciliation, grace's fruit is born. So church, when the church obeys the God of reconciliation, there is abundant refreshment. Why is all this refreshing? It shows us that grace is alive and well in the church. It witnesses to us that Christ is still working graciously in us and through us. It shows us that relationships are worth having. It shows us that relationships are worth persevering in despite real grievances, despite all of the sin drama that affects all of our lives. Yes, relationships are worth having. Consider your own marriage if you're, if you're married. At the first sin, at the first big sin, do you say, okay, we're done? I didn't sign up for this. I only signed up if we're going to be happy always. That you weren't going to hurt me? That you weren't going to break your vows on day two? Which one of us has kept his or her marital vows in full every single day? Just like our vows before our Lord, we are not perfectly faithful. We fall. We offend. And yet we still have relationships. Why? Well, because God has designed us to have relationships. Because the Father, the Son, the Spirit commune with one another and have eternally and have been in perfect fellowship with one another because Christ is the head of the church and the church is not just of one person. It's of hundreds or dozens or thousands, depending on the particular local church. But across the board, millions, cabillions, and other large numbers made up. Relationships relationships are worth having. This is all refreshing because it tells us that Christ's peace is stronger than that pernicious sin that separated you two, or that has still separated you two for the time. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ's peace is stronger than that pernicious sin that is between you two? Or is the relationship a lost cause? Just imagine if that's how the Lord treated us. Sorry, man, no dice. 
We sin way too many times. Last couple of days, I've been asked to help some people in back in Arizona. One guy has, has sinned pretty seriously, and his, uh, his wife has, for the time being, left him, moved the state, moved out of the state for now. And in my estimation, there's not grounds for divorce, per se. But even if there were, it doesn't mean that you have to go through with it. And I'm reminded of Ezekiel 16, and I'm not going to read it to you because it's very long. It's also quite graphic. Uh, it's one of the first texts I actually go through in my premarital counseling. Um, Ezekiel 16 is about the faithless bride, Israel. And you read it, you read it slowly. Read it slowly and just feel the weight of Israel's sin, how, they, how she had just prostituted herself to, to any passerby, how she has even killed Yahweh's kids by sacrificing them to Molech. And over and over and over and over again, you say, wow, could it get any worse? And the next verse gives it to you. Yeah, it can. It can get worse. And it has gotten worse. And it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until the very end. And the Lord says, Nevertheless, I'm going to atone for you for all that you have done. You will remember your sin, and it will be shameful, but I will be with you. I will atone for all that you've done. And it's just a beautiful testimony of Christ's love for the church. Christ's love for people who were not the church, and he made the church. Christ has never given up on us. Despite the numerous sins, the daily sins, the daily offenses in thought, word, and deed. If you really took 10 minutes to think about how you personally have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed, it ought to cause you to shudder, to tremble. Not because you've now questioned your own salvation, but because you've seen your Father is holy and you are a sinner in desperate need of His salvation in desperate need of his ongoing saving work, his ongoing sustaining hand, his grace and peace and mercy. Surely that ought to fill your hearts with, with greater faith, with greater joy, greater thanksgiving. We don't dole out infinite grace because we don't have it. But God's not calling us to dole out infinite grace. He's telling us to be reconciled. He's telling us to forgive our brother who has sinned against us. And we say, well, what if he sins against us seven times a day, Jesus? You know, that's pretty bad. He does it. He does the same thing seven stinking times in a day. What do I do about that? What about that, Jesus? Have you thought about that? And Jesus says, you know what, Peter? You're right. That's too many times. No, absolutely not. What does he say? 77 times, or 70 times 7. He comes to you, he repents, you forgive him. None of this, you're done with him stuff. He's going to be with you in heaven for crying out loud. He's going to be reconciled to you in heaven. Why not do it now? How refreshing it is. 
when God's people labor together to stay together. But we must face the facts. It is a sad testimony of church history that some don't stay. And here, I have primarily in mind apostasy. Verses 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. You're probably going to forget most of those names, and that's okay. They'll remind you when you see them in heaven. These were real men, and they really ministered in some capacity with Paul at some point. And we need to be thankful for the ministry of these men. Most of them stayed. Most of them kept on keeping on with Paul. Epaphras was the very first one to bring the gospel to Colossae. You learn about that in Colossians 1. And he was most likely converted by Paul's gospel ministry. Man, that, that Paul had such a fruitful life, such a, a fruitful ministry. He's bringing, people who, he's bringing people together that formerly weren't and that didn't know Jesus. You got Epaphras, you got Philemon, Onesimus, and, and all the rest. How gracious God was through Paul's ministry. But Epaphras likewise was in chains to the gospel for a time. He was also a prisoner in Christ Jesus, and he endured to the end. Or consider Mark. This man was the one who gave us the gospel of Mark. We went through that a couple years ago, also known as John Mark. It was in his mother's house that the early Christians in Jerusalem met back in Acts 12. He was a student or a follower of the apostle Simon Peter. Mark was also a cousin of Barnabas, and he came with Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey of Paul's. You might remember that. And sadly, and we don't know exactly why, but he didn't complete the journey. And this failure to complete the journey made Paul lose some trust in this young man, and he decided... Mark's not going to go with me on my second journey. And so John Mark was the circumstantial reason for Paul and Barnabas separating. And though God providentially used that for the greater extent of the kingdom, it was still a difficult thing for these two co-laborers, Paul and Barnabas, to separate over this one person. But here in Philemon, probably seven or so years later, Paul calls Mark his fellow worker. Not only did Paul and Mark reconcile, but they found a place to co-labor for Jesus. Or consider Aristarchus. He was active with Paul during Paul's second missionary journey. You can read about this in Acts 19. He, Aristarchus, and a man named Gaius were seized by the Ephesians during the riot of the silversmiths, a riveting tale. But he was a fellow prisoner and a traveling companion with Paul to Rome. Or consider Luke. Luke, the physician who gave us the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and perhaps even wrote Paul's letter to the Hebrews. Luke stayed with Paul in Rome during his imprisonment there. He was a faithful worker for Christ, his king, until the very end. Most stay. But some leave. 
you know Demas, the one name that I hadn't commented on yet, if you know of Demas, then you know of his demise, his eventual downfall. Right now, in Paul's letter to Philemon, he is one of Paul's fellow workers. He, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, greets the Colossians as well. So at this point, he is demonstrating faithfulness. But in about a decade from the time that Paul writes to Philemon, and of course Paul didn't know this until it happens, but in about a decade, Demas will show himself to be a defector. He will show himself to be an apostate. In Paul's last letter, his second letter to Timothy, he says that Demas left him for the love of the present world. When the church prefers the world's temporary pleasures, reconciliation fades away. The possibility of it fades away. When people leave, it is not a testimony of a, weak, of a weakness of the gospel, because the gospel has the power to save lives, it has the power to stabilize relationships, and has the power to cause them even to be better than they were before. Insisting on our own way closes the door to reconciliation. We will not, if we insist on our own way, we will not persevere in the fight. We'll say, enough is enough, we're done. But love is patient in relationships. It is kind in our dealings with one another. With love, we stay the distance rather than allowing a root of bitterness to spring up from within. I recently heard from a godly man that if love were easy, it would be a work of the flesh. That was Pastor Owen, by the way. Had a conversation with him and thought that was good, so I took a note of that. I don't know if it originated with him, but that's good. If love were easy, it would be a work of the flesh. Love is hard. You know this. You, you love your children, you love your spouse, but loving is difficult. Because there are, real sen- there are real sins, there are real offenses, real grievances. There are real annoyances. But love sees the grievance, but chooses to forbear. Love sees the offense and pursues the offender. Isn't that how our father acted towards that prodigal son? He knew the prodigality of that son, how he had squandered all of the father's good things. And the father doesn't say, I'll just wait for him to come to me. He runs and embraces his son and celebrates killing the fattened calf, giving the, the great garments, the rings, and all that. That's what our father has done for us, isn't it? He, he wasn't waiting for us to turn to him. He, he gave us his only begotten son. He put on us that garment of salvation, that righteous robe covered with peace and the blood of Christ and grace and mercy and love and joy and wisdom, kindness. But since the love that causes reconciliation is a work of the Spirit and not of the flesh, we must cry out always for this forever need of ours, Verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Do you see how Paul ends, just how he began the letter? Remember, the letter begins, I've said it probably a thousand times in these three sermons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he begins. 
And then he ends, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with, be with your spirit. You can hardly fit any more grace in these few 25 verses. Just so much grace. What we don't notice in the English, but is there in the Greek, is that the your in your spirit is plural. Y'all's spirit, if you will. The, Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with y'all's spirit. The collective, I know you like that, the collective ecclesiastical spirit. He means the spirit of the church that meets in Philemon's house. And by this he has moved beyond Philemon and Onesimus and the matter between them. Restoring Onesimus isn't only a Philemon-only matter. It is a whole church matter. And as such, all of them, not just Philemon, not just Onesimus, but all of them will need grace upon grace, peace upon peace, in order to respond well. We need this grace always. As individuals, as couples, as parents, as families, as churches, we all need this grace all of the time. We must have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with our spirit, with the spirit of this church, of Cross Creek. There is an oft-told story of the great George Whitfield and the great John Wesley. These men were great revivalist preachers. Whitfield was a Calvinist, and Wesley, not so much. And they were fine evangelistic preachers who eventually found themselves at odds with each other. In a sermon by Wesley called Free Grace, he challenged the Reformed view, which we would say is the biblical view, of divine election. Wesley, with all of his publications, was undermining Whitfield's preaching and evangelistic power. Whitfield and Wesley would trade letters regularly on the subject, each trying to convince the other, all to no avail. And it looked like reconciliation was not going to happen, that America was, was not big enough for the both of them. And when Whitfield was back in England, Wesley was determined to see him. But Whitfield was reported by Wesley as saying, though he didn't actually say this, he was reported by Wesley as saying that they both preached different gospels. And as the years passed, there was some movement forward to each other by both men. But one day, Whitfield was asked if he would see Wesley in heaven. Whitfield, are we going to see Wesley in heaven? You know, the messages are too different, right? He, he's not Reformed, and when we are, surely the Reformed are going to be in heaven, but will the non-Reformed be in heaven? Will you see Wesley in heaven, Whitfield? And Whitfield says, no, I'm not going to see Wesley in heaven because he's going to be so close to the throne of grace and I'm going to be so far. He had that high esteem for the man with whom he disagreed. And as a beautiful end to Whitfield's life, he had asked Wesley to preach at his funeral sermon. It takes a lot of grace to ask someone with whom you heartily disagree to preach at your funeral. It takes a lot of grace for us to receive one who has deeply offended us. 
But the same grace that Jesus poured out on the cross as his blood dripped down his body is given to you even now from on high as we fight to love one another and so refresh each other's spirits. Let's pray. Our God of all grace, God, you who reconcile the world to yourself, we are so thankful for this great work of salvation that you have wrought in us by Jesus Christ and his Spirit. We pray that you would continue to transform us, grace upon grace, day after day, that we would be more and more close to the heart of reconciliation, your heart. We pray this, Lord, ever reliant on that grace that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite the